Gospel. Uh, we're going to have a New Testament reading from uh, Matthew's Gospel. Oh, the very first chapter. Matthew chapter 1. Beginning of Matthew's Gospel. This is how Matthew introduces Jesus to us. Verse 1 A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Esa, Esa, the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, Joram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatel, and Sheatel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Lankim, Lankim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zedok, Zedok the father of Akim, Akim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Beginning the 20th of November, we were looking at the gems that are hidden in the Old Testament concerning our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And we did that the first couple of Sundays, the last Sundays of, uh, of November. And then last Sunday, we began to look at how these James, as it were, are uh, revealed to us in the New Testament. Basically, what we what we're looking at these last couple of weeks, uh, last week and this week, is to look at how these are fulfilled. These uh, uh, words, these prophecies, these messages in the Old Testament, how they are fulfilled in the New Testament, as they pertain to the Lord Jesus. My favorite Christmas story is really just one verse, and that's not in Matthew. Matthew gives us uh, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, I mean, at least in legal terms, uh, because obviously uh, Joseph was not the uh, biological father as he was uh, My favorite Christmas story is actually one verse in John, John's Gospel. And I'm sure you you don't necessarily need to turn to it. Uh, John is introducing the Lord Jesus in a different way. But my favorite uh, Christmas story, as I say, uh, comes in verse 14, where he says, The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. Flesh. And to me, that says, that says everything. So what I want to do this morning is just uh, talk about the way in which these messages from the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New Testament and how when we encounter the story about Jesus in the New Testament, we are taken back to the Old Testament and how that story, these events, and everything concerning the Lord Jesus is a fulfillment of what is in the old. The first comment I want to make has got to do with the fact that these gems that were hidden, as it were, in the, in the old, are revealed to us in the new. And, and in this case, uh, John puts it this way. He says, right in the beginning, kind of taking us right back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. How? We just spoke the word and everything came into being. In the beginning was the word. The word that said, let there be light. Let this happen, let that happen, let that happen. Until it came to the creation of man where there was a kind of committee meeting, a kind of conference within the within Godhead. Let us make man in our own image. So I just want to make this point that the coming of the Lord Jesus, this word becoming flesh, the coming of the Lord Jesus was the fulfillment of an ancient promise. And the promise, and this is why I read Matthew's Gospel, uh, the first chapter, the promise is what God made when the fall had happened in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, you remember that uh, uh, Eve has a little conversation with the, uh, the serpent, and the serpent uh, entices her in uh, disobeying God uh, because this God of theirs uh, that's what the Satan was basically saying to Eve, is a rather insecure God. He doesn't want competition, because if you eat of this fruit, you're going to become just like him and know good and evil. And planted thoughts in Eve's mind, 
she looked at the fruit and uh, she reckoned it looked pretty good. Fruit, you look good. And uh, you're desirable for food. And, and I always, when I come to that, I always ask myself, um, where did you get this nutritional uh, information? That this food that you've never eaten is good for food, it's nutritious. But even more than that, it's good for wisdom. It will allow you to know good and if God has been keeping away, you away from that. So the fall has taken place. And uh, you, of course you know what, uh, uh, what happens after God in a very respectful way doesn't come and say, you can't hide from me, I know where you are. I ask Adam, where are you? Uh, and Adam doesn't really want to say I'm here, but he says, well, actually I'm hidden. Because uh, you know the, the rest of the story. But the, the promise is the promise really to the devil. The promise is the promise to the devil that is fulfilled on the day that we remember, the day that Jesus was born. And it's in verse 15. Where the curse, of course, begins in verse 14. Uh, the, the blame, you know. Remember, Adam shifts the blame to Eve. Eve says, well, in me, I was, I, was, I, was, I was just tricked. I was tricked by the serpent. And so the serpent is being addressed by God. Verse 14 of Genesis 3. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. You know, whatever that means. I mean, I'm not going to try and expound that. All I know is that snakes, you know, don't have legs, they grow on their bellies. If you ask uh, uh, Darwin, maybe he's got his own explanations. But my interest in verse 15, and in, in addition to this curse that God pronounces on the serpent, uh, who kind of represented the presence of the devil there. And I will put an enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will crush the seed of the woman, will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. We'll come to how that is done later, but the coming was a fulfillment of that ancient promise. And that ancient promise was that there is the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman is going to come and is going to crush your head. So the defeat of sin, the defeat of Satan and all his plans, the undoing of the fall ultimately was going to be done by the seed of the woman. Well, Paul talks about him as the seed of Abraham, uh, and Matthew introduces him this way. But to me, as Matthew gives us his genealogy, it seems to make the point that the one that is introducing to us is indeed the seed of the woman. Now it's, it's interesting the way that the the way that the genealogy is given to us. This is Matthew writing gospel to Jews. This is a particularly Jewish Jewish uh, gospel. Uh, and if you read Matthew's gospel, you, you notice that Matthew avoids using words like God, just like, just like us. When I was asked. When we were asked, uh, I think I was in standard two at the time, uh, to give the names of our fathers. We couldn't. We never used the names of our fathers. You know, just father. So if you ask me, if I was asked, uh, what's the name of your father? Oh, they call him uh, Rashi Joy. Uh, and things like that. Uh, but, uh, oh, Badada. But his name, you don't, you, don't mention the, you don't mention the name of God. 
I tried it on a Jewish in a person in Osaka to see how does this name we say Jehovah, Jehovah. I mean, the Jewish name, the Jewish people would not mention the name of God. So we don't know how the name of God sounds. Now, a genealogy being written by Jews to Jews would not include women. The interesting thing you see in this, in this uh, gospel, and Matthew doesn't, doesn't emphasize that, but as I read the gospel, it seemed to me that this is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. That is the seed of the woman that is going to come and crush the servants, the serpent's head. And so you find women being introduced here. Maybe not women that, uh, not exactly the most uh, shining example of womanhood. At least from our perspective. But from God's perspective, these are the forebearers, as it were, of the, of the Lord Jesus. The one that is mentioned first is Tamar. You can read her story in Genesis chapter 38. This is the one who tricked her father-in-law, Judah, to have sex with her. And it wasn't about sex as far as she was concerned. It was about prolonging this race that Judah was actually trying to hinder because of his wicked sons who were judged by God. And so Tamar facilitates, if you like, the coming of the Messiah by tricking the father-in-law of Judah. When he discovers she's pregnant, he says she must be burned to death when he discovered that he had something to do with it, that he was actually the sperm donor. He goes, oops, I think she's more righteous, he says. She's more righteous than me. The seed of the woman is on the way. Tama is, is mentioned first. And then as we read the story, we come to verse 4. Nation the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. You probably remember Rahab. Uh, you probably remember she's recorded having a certain profession uh, that we would not necessarily uh, applaud. And yet she's one of the heroes of faith. So if you go to the New Testament and they're talking about faith, she is among the heroes of faith. She was the father of the Boaz. So, so first of all, you have this woman tricks her father-in-law, have sex with her. Then you have this woman who is described as a prostitute. Then you have a more Moabites. They were outside of Israel. Although she's a pretty good woman, Ruth, whom Boaz married. So his, his mom is the prostitute, and uh, his wife is a Moabitess. So the line goes on. And it's even more interesting to me when it comes to David. David was the father of Solomon, and the mother this time is not even mentioned. And it's as if God is making a point about what the writer of the Hebrews says later on, there's so many things one can be embarrassed about in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus. But the writer of the Hebrews says, he, Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brethren. He so identifies with us, he's, as it were, he's not blushing when you, when you read his genealogy. Of course, the Pharisees didn't particularly applaud him. And this man, like I was saying last, remember last Sunday? This, this, this man, can't he tell that this woman who is fussing over him, she's a sinner. Everybody in town knows she's a sinner. How can, it be, how can he be associating with this sinner? How can he be associating with you? With me? Because the Apostle Paul says we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But that's why it's called Jesus. 
But here is the here is the next thing. Solomon, the father. Sorry, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been. I mean, obviously, before he he, he could have Solomon, uh, he had been. So that was passed. Uh, I'm sure you know about the details. Go to Second Second Samuel chapter eleven on what uh, you find the story. Whose mother had been Uriah's wife. So she's not even mentioned. But the thing that is mentioned about the father of Solomon is that she had been somebody else's wife. And so if you want to read this story, you have to go back to the Old Testament. <laughs> David stole somebody's wife, murdered the husband, and then produced this child, Solomon. I was tempted in the reading to skip all those names, but I thought, well, they are there, so I might as well read them and mention them. And some of them, I mean, when you read the other names, you, you notice that these are names of the succession of kings, the kings of uh, the kings of Judah, uh, until you go to the exile, and then uh, things continue there until we get to Joseph. It's interesting that once you get to Joseph then he's kind of pushed aside. (laughs) Joseph, step aside. Because we're talking here about the seed of the woman. So the next woman that is to be mentioned is Mary. He only was connected with the mother who was to give birth to Messiah. The husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So, the one who came, came, in my mind, as a fulfillment of the promise that the seed of the woman, the seed of the woman, is one who's going to take care of business, as far as the fall is concerned. Does I say my favorite story, my favorite Christmas story, this is the second point I want to make, and it's really answering the question, who came? It's described as the seed of, of the woman. Who is this who came? Well, John is very clear, right at the beginning, when he starts his gospel, he's not so much concerned to say that he's, he's descended from Abraham, he's, uh, he's entitled to the, to, the, to the kingship of Judah, because he, he inherits the, the throne of David. He's more concerned to tell us that the one who has come is our creator. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This Word became flesh. God in flesh. God dressed in this attire that represents sinners who have rebelled against God. That is how he comes into the world. And of course, it's because I will deal with that later, but this is God who has come in the flesh. He's come in a way that we can see him. He's actually visible. Let me take you to what John says later on when he's writing his, his first letter. This is, how he, this is how he expresses it. There he's just very blunt, He just says it without explanation, without any kind of apology for saying that. That which was from the beginning, he's again talking about Jesus. That which was from the beginning, like his uh, gospel, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, This is just a testament to the fact that God became visible. We could touch him. And John, of course, describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. With the relationship with God. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. We, We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that 
you also may have fellowship with us. That is his agenda. So that you also might have a relationship with this invisible God who has chosen to make himself visible. This is a fulfillment, of course, of Isaiah. The virgin will give birth to a son and you call him Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God is with us. So this one who came is God. But God who is going to be with us, who is going to live with human beings, so it puts on flesh. He dwelt long enough with us to leave a mark of his identity as long as the long-awaited promised gem, as it were. And that is really the agenda that uh, John has. So the rest of the gospel is just demonstrating to us that that one who came is God. And that is the point of his miracles. And if you've missed the point in chapter 20, he says, this is why I'm telling you these things. I would have told you lots of things. Jesus did lots of things. But I'm just telling you this so that you might know who came. And why I want you to know that this is the one who came. The one who gives life eternal. So even after this, the, the resurrection, uh, Luke wants to make the point that the one who came is the one who's gone back to his dwelling place, as it were. And Pentecost is a testimony that he has overcome death. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised from the dead, has exalted him to glory again, and has poured out what you now see and hear. And that explains Pentecost, not because these men are drunk, but because the one you crucified, the one you rejected, has triumphed over death. Who came? God. God came. God became visible. Because God wanted a relationship with us. I suppose that's really answering the next question I want to ask. Why? Why did God do this? You know, there was a time I was just thinking about this and I just got so overwhelmed. God, invisible God, gets inside an egg of a woman. Can hardly see because just a point of point of a needle. And spends nine months in the womb of Mary. And God has got to go through all that business of traveling through the birth canal. And not in the poshest of delivery rooms. There's no room in. So they have to make do with a place where animals feed, where animals live. The boo's bedroom. That is his birthplace. And, and I think, why all this trouble? Well, and that is answered in a number of ways in the, in the scriptures. Luke says, well, this is Jesus himself talking about this business of crushing the serpent's head. He says, you see, so long as the strong man is armed, is able to protect his possessions, then they're safe. But if you get someone stronger than him, you can find the story in Luke chapter 11, verse 21 to 23. If one comes with stronger than him, you can overcome him and set his goods free. So we are slaves, Jesus says in John chapter 8. But he comes to set us free as a stronger one. He comes as the crusher of the serpent's head. The one who took Eve and 
Adam caused them to do something that is in rebellion against God. Well, God comes in human form to come and crush the servant's head. And that is how Jesus explains his deliverance of uh, people demon-possessed. He said he's doing Babuzabah. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. The finger of God is achieving all this. And the demons, they, he didn't have to say anything. He appears and they recognize that he is there, that he's greater than, than all. Another, another way that this is described in, uh, by the Apostle Paul is that he comes to make the news, the good news that was first, if you like, shared with the Jews to make it inclusive. He comes so that the promises that were made to Abraham, who was first described as Abraham, the exalted father, he was to be a father of many, of a multitude. And that multitude includes Gentiles. So Jesus comes to introduce an inclusive gospel. Even his genealogy tells you that that is in the mind of God. That the Gentile, like Ruth, Gentile, like Rahab, we'll just call her a Gentile for now. She's included. A Gentile like Tamar. These are not Jewish people. They're included. The Apostle Paul makes that point uh, that the blessings of Abraham should come to us as well. To demonstrate, of course, this is, this is the reason, I'm sure if I'd asked, why did Jesus come? I'm sure there would be a chorus of John 3.16, because God loved the world so much. That's why he's willing to go through all that trouble. Now, as I was thinking about that this, this morning, uh, the song that came to me uh, is from my generation, uh, from the, the Beatles, uh, with a love like that. You know you should be glad. Except, this is not the love of a girl. This is the love of the Creator. With a love like that, you know you should be glad. God loved the world so much. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son. And then John says in his letter, how, how peculiar is the love of God. How incomparable is the love of God that we should be called the sons of God. And that's what we are. To put our trust in the Lord Jesus, then you are a child of God. That incredible thing is made possible because Jesus came. And that's why he came. He came so that we might have a relationship with God. Now here is the sad part of the coming of the Lord Jesus. And John talks about this in, in his gospel. Let me just read what he says. He was in the world. And though the world was made through him, though he was the world's creator, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, particularly the Jewish nation, but his own did not receive him. The world did not, did not recognize him. But even those who recognized him, even those who were expecting him, you remember I made reference to Matthew chapter 2, Herod, Herod knew that the Messiah would come. And he asked the experts, where is the Messiah going to be born? When they pinpointed where he was going to be born, he recognized that he needed to worship him. And so he says to the mega, will you tell me where he is so that I can worship him? 
these were people who were expecting that the Messiah would come. And yet when he came, his own did not receive him, John says. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God. How great is the love of God that we should be called the sons of God. If we put our trust in the Lord Jesus, then we become children of God. The reception he received, by and large, he was rejected. By and large, he was shut out, as it were. But my wife is expecting, well, maybe we can make room for you where the animals sleep. Largely rejected, either not recognized or outright rejected, kind of in-your-face rejection. The crucifixion was because the very top leadership of the religious establishment considered him an insult to God. How dare you call God Father? We don't need any more witnesses. He has condemned himself from his own mouth. That is how far the rejection went. It was just a question, I we not talking anymore. I don't like you anymore. He is not worth to live. He must die. He must die. That is the reception he received. But I want to say this, as John puts it in verse 11. Sorry, verse 12. Yes, he was rejected. But I want to say there are always exceptions. There are always exceptions. And I trust that the majority of us here are among those exceptions. Exceptions to this mass rejection of God coming to woo us to himself in love. Yet all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And I trust that you are an exception. And if you trust the Lord Jesus, then you are an exception. You are a child of God. If you do not trust the Lord Jesus, then you are like Herod. And like I said last week, you, this will be a Herod Christmas for you. Uh, you enjoy the whatever, whatever it is that you've prepared for Christmas. Nothing to do with the birthday boy, if you like. He's kicked out. There are always exceptions. Let me take you back to the, to the Old Testament. And that's why I put it that way. That's why I say there are always exceptions. Because right from the beginning, when by and large, God's government was rejected, always exceptions. It doesn't matter if you're the only person, maybe in your workplace, in your school. It doesn't matter that you're the only one who trusts in the Lord. Don't worry. You're in good company. There have always been exceptions. Genesis chapter 6. The, this rot, this rebellion against God has gone so bad that this is what God says in Genesis chapter 6 verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart this is not just a kind of cognitive thing this is something that's coming from deep within every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time so that even when he's religious Isaiah says Maybe I should put it this way. Even when we are religious, as I says, our righteousness, righteousness that comes from us, is like 
polluted garments. Imagine going around in it's not just Saraula, but this is this is torn Saraula in the mud, whatever. That's what our righteousness and here it's depicted in that way, at least in God's eyes. God saw, and this is what he saw wickedness. He saw the thoughts. He saw the motivation. He saw the inclination. And it was only evil continually. And it broke his heart. It broke his heart. Verse 6, the Lord was grieved. We talk about grief. God knows about grief. And God knows about grief when his love, his perfect provision is rejected by creatures that he he wants to take care of. It's heartbreaking. And God was heartbroken. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain if you've experienced the pain of grief, pain of loss, maybe losing a loved one, that gives you a little hint. And the thing that I like about the Lord Jesus, when God became a human being, was as very transparent about his feelings. When Jesus is amazed about something, he doesn't say, I'm God, nothing takes me by surprise. He says, I've never seen faith like that. That's just mind-blowing. I've never seen something like that. Not even in Israel. When he was disappointed, if you let him down because he wanted to depend so much on you, he expressed it bitter. One hour. One hour. I'm not asking you to come to the cross with me, just to watch with me, just to give me moral support. Just one hour, Peter. You couldn't do that. He was very transparent. And here, God has been very transparent. This is how he feels. This is how he felt. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled, filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created. It doesn't give him joy to do that. Remember, it's painful. But he's got to be consistent with character. He's a holy God. But anyway, this is why I'm turning to this passage. Verse 8, but. That's a word that usually brings contrast. A word that we often misuse. Yeah, I know, I know, but. Meaning I'm not going to do what I know. Here is a good exception. But Noah, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You find this again at the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 16. Where there's another exception. Again, people who are religious, but essentially rejected God. God says, I love you. And they say, hmm, how have you loved us? You want sacrifices? Here's a, here's a sacrifice. Here's an animal with, with blind, broken, all that kind of stuff. So the over religion, that is a stink, as it were, in God's nostrils. Well, borrowing from uh, Isaiah chapter 1. Malachi, verse 16 of chapter 3. I remember it read from a, a children's talk in, uh, in Glasgow many years ago. Uh, by and large, there were those who found religion a burden. But then the exception was this group of people who gathered together and they were talking together. 
things that were edifying. Well, maybe that sounds too poetic. Let me just read the verse to you. You can mayum for what how God reacts to the exceptions. His heart is filled with pain from those who reject him. But here is the exception, verse 16. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Those who feared the Lord talked with each other. Lord listened and heard. He also heard those people and what was coming in their hearts, what was being brewed in their hearts. And the scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. There are always exceptions. And you can be one of the exceptions. If I'm to be anthropomorphic, if I'm going to put God in a, in a human way. I'm almost imagine he's sitting on his throne and then he's watching these people who are talking with each other and he likes what they're saying. Gabriel, Gabriel, and bring the scroll. Bring the scroll. It's her name. <laughs> let's, let's not forget that. And his name and her name. And the scroll of remembrance was written in his presence. A scroll was, you, your name, you, one of the exceptions, your name is written on that scroll. And that image, of course, is repeated again. Jesus uh, says in John 10, it's like, your name is written on his hand. And then, of course, in, John, in John's other writing, in Revelation chapter 20, you have, again, the names of those who have yielded to this offer of life. There are always exceptions. Always exceptions. Be sure you are one of the exceptions. And this is why it's important. This is why it's important to choose sides. Because there was a flood. And only those who are part of the exceptions were in the boat. The chance was given for them to get on the boat. The boat was big enough. There comes a time when God then shuts the door. And the chances are gone. That's what we find in Genesis. The writer of the Hebrews puts it this way. He says, a time is going to come when you and I we live this life. And when that happens, the opportunity is gone. The opportunity to make things right is gone. We are told that it's appointed for us to die once. We're not a bunch of cats. And I'm not even sure whether that's true. It's in a cat with nine lives. Uh, I, haven't, I haven't known any cat with nine lives. Um, it's appointed for man to die once. After that comes judgment. And that's why it's important to make sure we understand who came, why he came, and how he was received, I have to make sure that we don't do what others did. That we need to be exceptions. It's appointed for man to die once. After that, it's judgment. Let me read what the writer of Hebrews says. Just as a man is destined to die once, this is Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and after that, to face judgment. And so the Apostle Paul says, because of that, if you are one of those who are an exception to this general rejection, then you are able to say, 
this precious verse to me uh, back in uh, 40 years ago now. Now, the Second Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. Now we know. And you can know. We know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, it's talking about death. If the earthly tent we, we, we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God. An eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling. And so, verse 9, we are confident, I say, let me pick up verse 8, we are confident, I say, we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We are confident because we know, and it's possible to know, because we're dealing with a God who makes promises, hundreds of years later, he fulfills those promises. So we're able to know because those promises come from him. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're away from the body or away from it. Because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and each one may receive what is due to him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So, you can be an exception. There are always exceptions. Because he will come again. Just as it was promised in the Old Testament that is coming, and he did come, he will come again. And when he does, we want to be the exception, not the general rule. And this is what Peter says in the second letter. He warns us about what's going to tend to happen. Dear friends, it's now my second letter, he says, in chapter 3 of verse chapter 3 of 2 Peter. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing and following their own evil desires, just like in the days of Noah. They will say, what is the coming? He promised. You old man, you've been building this boat and we've not seen rain for, for a long time. And you're building this boat, what for? What kind of nonsense is this? That's what scoffers will say. You talk about his coming, his coming, his coming. When is he coming? But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. The Lord is not a Zambian. One of the things that I learned when we came back to Zambia was Zambians very good at making promises. They have not thought how they're going to fulfill promises, that promise. And then that also goes to not only making promises about what they're going to do, no idea how they're going to do it, but also borrowing money. So I'm having to deal with that so much in counseling, especially about mine. You know, I've learned new words, bakaloba. I, I, I need to consult uh, my brother and your aunt. I don't know whether that's legal. Because these people, you borrow one pin, at the month end, you must bring one pin, 500. And then you have one five plus 50% at the next month. So not people who borrow 2,000, and because they're defaulting there, say, how much do you owe? It's 8,000. How much did you borrow? 2,000. So one of the words that I've been trying to teach, Rashmine, is the word shikwete. 
and I was really excited to, to get uh, some feedback from one of our uh, workers, this is now Mary, in Mary context, uh, Reverend, I'm so grateful that you taught me that word, Shikwete. I used it with my sisters, and they were okay with it. So everybody's happy. And when you don't make yourself the savior of everybody, you discover that people will manage somehow or other. So by all means, give, share, but don't share what you don't have. Learn to say Shikwete. Not worried about how they're going to label me. Have a Then the member have put us in that situation. A paper sheet paper Oh, let's work a shape. So we borrow. We, this one, when he makes a promise, our God, when he makes a promise, he fulfills his promise. He fulfills the promise concerning his son. Jesus came. Jesus is coming again, and that is a promise. And it will happen. He's not slow in keeping his promise. But he is patient with you, wanting, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I think as I, I referred to this uh, when we just came back in 94, you had, I can't remember what the thing was, but the theme was redeeming the time. And this struck me that he's patient with you, you guys, who are the exceptions. He wants more of you. He wants us to bring others in the kingdom. So this outreach you're doing, Mukosepo, and he's patient, waiting for that job to be done. So there are always exceptions. He will come. So my final question is, what will, what will he find? Matthew 25, is he going to find foolish virgins or wise virgins? Matthew 25, again, is he going to find sheep or goats? Matthew chapter 7, is he going to find wise builders or foolish builders? One device, what divides people in the final analysis is whether we have welcomed him in our stable-like hearts. The important thing is not that, we, first of all, we, we, we clean up, we make everything good, but we just welcome him. That's the important thing. We welcome him whether we have fellowship with him, that is the important thing. And the tragedy would be if he says, especially if you are in the religious context, the tragedy would be if he says, I never knew you. And you say, ah, but I celebrated your birth. We used to do that religiously every Christmas. We always remembered you. I always say Christmas greetings. But he says, I never knew you. His coming was a fulfillment of that ancient promise. So he's come to crush the serpent said. He's come to deal with sin. It doesn't matter what your sin is. Jesus came. He was made to be sin. Who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5 and uh, verse 20 and 21 there, uh, that story is told to us. God went to all that trouble. The invisible God became visible so that he could have a relationship with us. And he came because he loves you. Because he wants you to spend eternity with him. Like Jesus said to his disciples, I've got to prepare a place for you so that where I am, there you may be also. He was lightly rejected, yes. But there are always exceptions. And you can be the exception. And if you already are, then this is the day uh, joy to the world. That I have a savior. I have a savior who saves to the uttermost.
And I pray that no one in here will hear the words of Jesus, I never knew you.